0: Welcome to the Mintz podcast series, In the Boardroom, practical advice and guidance for growth-oriented companies. This is a special edition focused on lessons learned from the Silicon Valley bank failure. My name is Steve Osborne. I'm the managing partner of the San Francisco office of Mintz, and my practice focuses on helping companies of all sizes grow, fund, and exit. I'm here with two of our top corporate governance partners, Melanie Levy, who is a capital markets lawyer in San Diego, and Tom Burden, who's a chair of our clean energy and sustainability practice.
1: Located in Boston, welcome Melanie and Tom. Hey Steve, thank you Steve. Hey and Steve, congrats on becoming managing partner in the St. Fran office. Thank you Tom, I pre- I
0: appreciate that. All right, so we're going to cover today the lessons learned from the Silicon Valley Bank failure. I think to set context for that, we should start with you know what does risk management in the boardroom really mean, and how it might be different for public and private clients. I think it'd be helpful for us to talk about who is principally responsible for companies for risk management. Then I think we should talk about the kinds of risks like Silicon Valley Bank's failure that should be looked at by companies as they're managing their their risk management. And finally, the big takeaways from Silicon Valley Bank, maybe some strategies for how to manage your cash and think about disclosure with respect specifically to the Silicon Valley Bank failure. You know, Silicon Valley Bank was not a small bank. It was the 16th largest bank in the country, it had $200 in assets, and the bank wasn't a startup. It may have served startup community, but it wasn't a startup. The bank was formed at x before many of the founders uh, that we represent were born. So this was a bank that was fairly large, had been around a long time, and frankly had a stellar reputation. It's probably the first time that we've had uh, a social media bank run. And for that weekend when this happened, late, late that week and weekend it happened, it certainly wasn't a wonderful life, uh, a reference to that movie uh, that we all know about the famous bank runs of the 30s. But what I think about now that this uh, crisis has played itself out is taking risk in business is essential. We're not going to avoid risk in business. The challenge that our clients are facing is these black swan events, the things like a Silicon Valley bank failure happening more frequently. And I think what it is is emphasizes a need for a re-evaluation of risk management boardrooms. So with that, I want to ask, Melanie, what does risk management mean in the boardroom for public companies?
2: So for public companies, it's the general thought and idea of identifying risk. To be clear, the standard is, is the same for public and private companies. Every board should identify the risks that are particular to its business. And I think that's one bucket of risks, risks that are particular to you, and then risks that are just particular in general to the market itself. And how public companies deal with it, that's maybe a little bit different, is public companies actually have disclosure obligations where they have to tell their shareholders the risks that they've identified and how the board or really the board and its committees are overseeing that risk. So if you think about what sort of risks that public companies, you know, might talk about generally in the sort of oversight by committee, For instance, compensation risks, risks about how a company pays its employees and whether that sets up the appropriate incentives, something that's typically managed by the compensation committee. When you're talking about ESG or those sorts of risks and and analysis, that's often managed by either the audit or the nominating and governance committee. And then when you talk about Risk sort of related to SVB, which is sort of a company's monetary policy, especially if that company is fortunate enough to have a large pool of cash that it is responsible for shepherding on behalf of its shareholders, that risk is pretty squarely designated to the audit committee to determine and oversee the process for having a policy to protect that asset just like you would protect any other shareholder asset. And so for public companies, those are sort of the main ways that you would look at it. But I would just underscore that at its core, every board is required to think about the risks that their company faces.
1: Yeah, I can chime in a little bit on the private company side, if you'd like. You know, you raise a really good point, Melanie, about the rules being effectively the same, regardless of whether you're a public or private company. In the private company context, of course, you don't have that plaintiff's bar overseeing what, you know, the public markets and in, in being ready to... To file a lawsuit, you know, against a board, so on behalf of the shareholders, and so because of that, there traditionally is less attention paid to some of these areas of risk. Uh, you know, we always do recommend our private companies have audit committees and, and compensation committees, as you noted, but some of these other pieces, like you know, the black swan scenarios, uh, are not the kind of thing that many private companies will really consider. And, and I think now. In light of the inflationary environment we're in, rising interest rates, the venture community and, and PE P community being a little bit more conservative with respect to the cash that they're spending as fiduciaries of, of, of their own funds, companies need to take a fresh look, we think, you know at risk. And they need to probably get a little bit more formal about it. And, and uh, there are a variety of ways that can be done. Steve, I'll, I'll go back to you here if you want. Yeah,
0: one of the things... One of the things about a private company is often at the early stages, you don't have the formal committees. We have a great podcast about committees and what they are and when you should start implementing them, which, if you're interested, you should go back and listen to our session on that. But because there's less formality in private company boards, you know, I often think risk management is not always the focus. The focus is often on financial statements or financial performance, maybe operational performance, maybe product development. And there isn't personnel who are required to think about or who are thinking about risk management. So for instance, you know some of our private growth companies don't have in-house counsel. And in fact, many of them don't have a CFO. They may have financed people in the organization, but not somebody whose job it is to manage the risks at a high level. And I wonder what a good strategy might be for those private companies that are less formal. How are they to look at risk management and who might help them look at risk management which i think transitions us to our second topic which is really who's responsible
1: for risk management in an organization yeah and, and, and i think there you know the the reality is um it ought to be certainly whoever is leading the finance function right of the company outside counsel can certainly play a role in helping manage risk as well and you know when i talk about you know there's operational risk there's sort of third party you know macro risks or or market risks and you know, and then there's maybe risks that are unique to an organization. If you're selling your products in parts of the world where there's geopolitical you know challenges or or climate risks that are particularly acute, you know you, you have to pay attention to those. But those folks, in addition to the board, the directors themselves, can implement risk management functions. You know assessments mm-hmm. and functions. You know, and I think that then time is right now for boards to take a fresh look and spend the time to identify you know those that are macro, those that are unique to the organization and then charge, you know, management and particular members of management or outsource the outside counsel some of these assessments and then report back to the board. So there's a regular reporting process, very similar to what we see with public companies.
0: I feel like there's a lot of standards for public companies when it comes to who serves on a board and what role they serve. And then the fact that you're meant to disclose and talk about who's on your board and what their capabilities are helps often for folks who are making these decisions to understand whether they have the right people in the right roles. I think one of the weaknesses in a private company is often the board members are chosen because of who they are as an investor and maybe who they are as a founder, and there isn't a focus on somebody who has risk management experience. And I think that may be a place to focus is that when you're looking at qualifications for our earlier stage boards, maybe we need to be looking at qualifications of somebody who's been through some kind of risk issue with a company and has experience about how to navigate or manage that. or even help predict what the risks are for that company. And if you don't have that, maybe you should be meeting with your outside law firm once a year or every six months. And the management should sit down with the law firm and talk through uh, what the risks are and maybe what a plan for risk management might be. Because I think that's often being overlooked. And in the example of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, m- most of the private companies had all their money with Silicon Valley Bank, or, or potentially all their money with Silicon Valley Bank and another community bank, Because of the relationships they were building with the community banks, and they therefore were really exposed beyond what they would have expected to be exposed. You know, Silicon Valley Bank, for me, going down given the credentials I talked about at the top of the podcast, it's a little bit hard to predict. But there are a lot of things that are predictable and often overlooked. And I thought it might be helpful if we could talk a little bit about what should boards be asking management or what should management be asking from their boards about risk management plans and testing them? And what are the kinds of things that we would be looking at right now as a way of predicting where risks are in a a company? Melanie, can you give us some thought on that?
2: Yeah. So for at least the public company perspective, I actually think it's, it's a lot easier than from the private company perspective, because with the public company perspective, you have a lot of third parties also that will help you with this analysis. So number one, and Tom, you said it at one of our podcasts. One of the key things that you should always ask, that a board member should ask, it's management, is what keeps you up at night? What are the things that keep you up at night that you worry about? That's a great inquiry. So that's a good source of information is asking management. And quite briefly, every board should ask that question. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? All of that. The other thing with public companies that they often have a resource in addition to their lawyers, and this helps particularly with the market environment, is many public companies have an investment banker that they routinely work with. And so that's a good resource to even have that investment maker come in, most particularly in front of an offering. They will almost always come to the board or a committee and talk. But they will also often present about the market for a particular sector, what their views are of the market in general, and they will come in and provide the board, you know, that sort of advice maybe once or twice and always usually around the timing of an offering. Another place that's good to identify risk, in addition to having a conversation with your lawyers, who that's most of what we do, (laughs) seeing the risk in something and helping you disclose it. Is for public companies, especially those that have analyst coverage, you always want to think about the public disclosure as a conversation. The public company puts its disclosure out there, it begins the conversation with filings, its earnings calls, et cetera, et cetera. And then the response it will receive back is usually what the analyst thinks about what a public company says. And so I would encourage board members, if you don't do this, to always ask your management if you don't have access to it for the analyst report that covers you. Because often the analyst will hear the plan for a CEO, they will make their assessment as to whether something's a buy, a hold, or a sell. And then in that assessment, they will say, this is what we think the risks are for this business plan. So it's almost like if you don't look at those reports, you're missing that part of the conversation. And a lot of lawyers, I always ask for the analyst reports for my clients, precisely because that. I want to see the conversation. I want to see what people are saying. And that, I think, is just, you know, good governance. So fortunately for a public company, you have a lot of strategies to try to come up with things because there's other people that will also say what they think about your business and your risks.
1: Yeah. You know, similarly, polling or or learning from others, I, I guess, is something that takes maybe a little bit of a different lens when you're a private company because you're not as out there but I had a uh, you know just literally last week a conversation with the CEO of a client of ours. We completed a funding round, and then that CEO um, called me up and said, "Okay, Tom, now that we've raised some cash, and I know I need to manage it in a certain way relative to the banks and make sure my balances are below the you know the insured limits and so forth. What other risks do I need to worry about?" So you know, so he asked outside counsel. And So of course, you know, I went through a few of these uh, legal oriented risks. But then I paused. I said, "Well, you know." you've got a lab, you've got, you know, on the legal side, I worry about OSHA, but, you know, for you, it's not OSHA, it's safety generally, right? So what you really ought to be doing is you ought to be talking to my other client who's, you know, more well-funded a year or two ahead in its development and growth, and their COO. And you guys can talk a little bit about, you know, what he does in order to deal with risk management. And in fact, both of these companies had sent engineers overseas into not the safest parts of the world. And, and they were curious about, you know, how do I insure against uh, or the, the safety of, this, of, the, of my executive or my engineer? And so I put them in touch with one another so that they could learn from each other. So it's almost as if you often see CEOs have their uh, CEO groups where they can openly discuss issues. And, and similarly, It may be that certain designees of companies can be in touch with other compatriots in similar areas where they all have to manage similar risks and they can help each other identify them and then come up with game plans to assess and mitigate. Those are great strategies. I I appreciate you
0: sharing those uh, with us, Melanie and Tom. I, I mean, obviously in Silicon Valley Bank, you know, the risks that are being discussed around that failure and around actually what led to that failure are kind of like inflation interest rate hikes, cash management plans. We'll talk a little bit more about some big takeaways at the end, but what are the kinds of risks that you're facing with your clients right now that maybe would trigger one of our listeners to think about it for their business? Understanding, of course, that as Melanie says, risks are particular to the business themselves and particular to the market you're in. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, but what are the things maybe that would come up for one of your clients that maybe something a lot of our clients should be thinking about?
2: One thing I'm seeing is in particular, and things to think about when you have a rising interest rate environment, is if you think about it, if you took out a loan to help fund your business, and for some companies, you took out a big loan, maybe you took out a Main Street loan, or you took out a loan you know, that was helped by the federal government during COVID, Remember, the banks are not making a lot of money, comparatively speaking, off of those loans. So whereas in the past, you may have had banks being very willing to work with you on defaults and things like that or breaches of covenants. You know, one trend that I think we seem to be seeing is that banks have a less, and less of an incentive to do that now. Because really for them, if the market rate is so low on that loan that they gave you, it almost makes financial sense for them to continue to either collect the default rate or what we're seeing with some clients is banks are telling them, we don't even care. We don't want your loan anymore. Go out and refinance it. And we have a lot of colleagues here that specialize in that in particular. But I'd say with a rising interest rate environment, that's one thing to always be cognizant of is if you have a loan that at a low rate, remember, the bank is not going to be Incredibly motivated in many instances to help you maintain that relationship. They may want to increase the rate or encourage you to get a different relationship, particularly if other investments in the bank are not doing so well. So, if the bank has other exposure or other investments and they start to see your loan as more of a risk, they may be less incentivized to even keep your loan or to allow you to refinance it. So that's an area I think that's getting very tricky with respect to access to debt capital. With respect to access to capital on the market, that's obviously very dependent because for many of our clients, we're considered riskier investments. There's an expected higher rate of return. And obviously, bonds with a higher rate, that's a competitive avenue to that. So if you just look at somebody investing on all of their capital choices, as interest rates go up, sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult to raise capital, depending on a bunch of other factors as well. But that's something we're sort of seeing in
0: the market today. Those are some great points really around cash management and how difficult cash management can be in in an economic climate like today. If I think outside of the financial and economic risks, critical suppliers is something that often gets overlooked. A lot of startups, a lot of growth companies do have concentration. And you think about concentration in customers and trying to spread that concentration out. But often you miss concentration on suppliers and vendors. And what happens if one of those go out of business? And you should have a plan for those kind of companies going out of business because at one point we might've thought that Silicon Valley Bank couldn't go out of business. It was too big to fail, so to speak. But in reality, we need to be thinking about risk and what are the plans for an eventuality, even for things like Silicon Valley Bank going out of business or your very important supplier going out of business. I don't know, Tom, anything else come to mind that would be... Uh, Uh,
1: some of the risks that we should be thinking about? Yeah, just to reiterate, I mean, I think we are seeing, particularly like in the renewable side, supply chain risk, I mean, you need to have redundancy on supply, you know, if you want to be financeable. Uh, Similarly, you know, there's also offtake risk, you know, making sure your offtakers are able to purchase uh, your ultimate product. Credit crunch is real, and I think that's going to have an impact both on the ability to obtain credit, but also it's going to have an impact on valuations, right? So penciling out projects, for example, renewables, they don't pencil out as well when the rates are higher, right? Because that that's an additional cost that might not have been plugged into the financial model when the offtake was signed, for example, or the supply agreement was put into place. So so there's a lot of um there's gonna be a lot of kind of uh wonkiness there, I think, over, over time in connection with that area. And, and likewise, you know, inflation, you know, plays into that, right? So if you don't have the uh buffers to account for inflation, you can run into some trouble there too, making some of the economics work on on this side of things. So all of those are really important um, economic uh, pieces that we have to have in place. And, um, and then on the cash management side, you know, I think back to one of my early assignments as a lawyer was to actually draft a policy for a public company that had just raised capital. And they'd raised, a, you know, m- much more than they could spend in any reasonable period of time. And, and what we were often looking at there was, let's make sure that this biotech company is not a de facto investment company. You know, that was the, that was the key big legal issue. And, you know, the recommendations would obviously hold hold the capital in a uh, money market account, to treasury, something that was safe and um, wouldn't be risky. While those exact same principles apply today as they did 20 years ago and, you know, 20 years prior to that. So we have to uh, revisit that and make sure that our clients are thinking along the lines of having more than one bank account and, and that they're holding on to their capital very conservatively. Their businesses in making a profit based on their product, not in making a return on the cash that they've raised. So,
0: Right. Okay. So before we move on to the big takeaways from Silicon Valley bank failure, I want to just summarize a little bit of where this discussion has gone because I think it's a very helpful discussion for our listeners. First, risk management is becoming a more prominent concern when it comes to managing your business, given the kinds of black swan and other big risks that are happening systemically in the market. Management should come up with a risk management plan for their business that focuses on the risks that are particular to that business, but also to the market that they're operating in. The board should be challenging those risk management plans and making sure that they're thought through and that they have the kind of depth and understanding that may not be always existing in, in a uh, management team. And so the board should be looking at uh, supplementing that. And we should be looking at putting people on boards who can supplement that. You also need to then craft. Defenses against those risks. That's very important. It's not just identifying the risks, but it's thinking about how to craft defenses to them. All right, let's do the big takeaways from Silicon Valley Bank startups. Uh, We can go a little bit around the table. I would say for a lot of my private company clients, you need to have an experienced CFO. The VCs on the board who are obviously financially savvy are not enough. You need to have somebody who understands how to manage your uh, cash, particularly because a lot of startups have a lot of cash on the balance sheet uh, that is not being used. So it's an idea of segmenting that into capital that you're going to be using, segmenting that into capital that is more um, with some kind of strategy for how you balance that. That's my big takeaway. Tom, do you want to give us a big takeaway
1: from Silicon Valley Bank? Sure. They were an interesting bank because they required their customers to work with them exclusively, which is surprising, but it worked from their business perspective. However, that created an unnatural level of risk for their customers, particularly those who kept enormous amounts of cash on deposit, you know, well in excess of the $250,000 insurable limit. So a key takeaway for me is that our clients should uh, have multiple banking relationships and not agree to any exclusivity clauses.
0: And Melody, how about you?
2: So I agree with everything you all said. I think probably for public companies, in addition to the investment policy and the cash management, is that this is now for many of them a risk that has come into fruition and is probably no longer considered something that is unknowable. So what I would encourage all public companies to do and to do with their attorneys is to think about the disclosure and how this risk should be characterized in their public filings with the SEC or in registration statements. Because as I mentioned before, there are requirements to disclose your material risks, and it's likely that you're going to see when you do an underwritten offering or maybe even bankers when they're asking diligence questions may begin to ask more granular questions such as where do you keep your cash? How is your cash managed? Um, and they're going to expect some sort of disclosure. And even in the weeks following SVB, we actually saw a huge influx because in, it happened right at the time that many companies were filing their 10Ks. So if you looked at 10Ks within that period, whereas many companies always had a risk factor that said we might hold cash you know, in an account that would exceed the FDIC-insured limit, you saw many companies that were affected or even some that could have been potentially affected adding a lot more granular disclosure. So it's different for every situation, but I definitely think disclosure is something that should be looked at.
0: So one of the things our clients are, are being told is you need a treasury policy for your excess cash. And uh, I, I know that like sort of money markets, funds, and ladder CD portfolios are the things people are talking about. Melanie, I think it's interesting. You were talking with, uh, with me at a time about sweep accounts and... And the sort of like legal implication of being a creditor versus a a more bailment type relationship, and these are all, as you say, uh, said to me. Like these are kind of like law school terms that we had to remind ourselves of. But maybe I think our our audience could benefit from a little of that discussion. If you,
2: yes, yes. So this was very interesting, and and I can say I've worked in house and I've worked at a law firm. And when I worked in house, probably the general counsel or the counsels of the company did not review in granular detail the account agreements with various banks. These are generally considered take-it-or-leave-it contracts that you would sign and you would never think about it. But actually, what some companies do is to to guard against the risk of ever exceeding the $250,000 FDIC limit is they would work with their banks and their financial advisors to create what are called these sweep accounts. And this meant that some money would be held in a bank account but that the rest of it could be balanced amongst numerous financial institutions or in some instances, numerous funds so that there was always an even level of protection and things spread out. What happened with SVB, which was really kind of fascinating, is there began to be sort of a debate about whether something was an asset that was held by SVB for the benefit of someone else or whether it was an asset that was in, like, truly a deposit account and part of what we would call the receivership, such that if there was a bankruptcy, it would have to go through the bankruptcy courts to have those assets distributed. What was interesting is if something is held generally custodied on behalf of someone else, there were many arguments where people were looking at these very picky account agreements To see, okay, is this asset or this pile of cash something that would be part of the estate or is it something that I would be able to circumvent the estate and essentially say, hey, that belongs to me. I don't have to wait. SVB was effectively just holding my place in line. They were holding my seat. They were holding this asset for me. So I should just be able to come in and take it. And that kind of turns on some very sort of, I would say, as I mentioned, Picayune language in the account agreements that you would have with your financial institutions, such as, is it said in those agreements that these are assets that are being held for you, custodied for you? Or does it say that you are a creditor if something should happen and you would have to sue to get those assets just like everyone else from a bankruptcy estate? So those are some of these sort of interesting legal questions, but probably not pleasant questions that many people were considering
0: at the time. And uh, as, as I often say to clients, sometimes the devil is in the details. And, uh, and one thing about lawyers, we like to sweat the details. And, and one thing I know about a lot of my clients is they like it when we sweat the details so they don't have to.
2: Exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> okay. So we'll wrap up there. Thank you for joining us on the mints podcast, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. I think this has been a lively and interesting discussion about sort of the implications of the Silicon Valley bank crisis. And thank you to my colleagues, Melanie Levy and Tom Burton, for joining me today. And we'll see you on the next
1: podcast.
2: Thank you. See you
1: on the next one.